The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. And then, as in the other Gospels, the hearing the, being baptized, hearing the voice, is immediately followed by temptation. And this, too, I think, is psychologically and spiritually accurate. Uh, the call, the, the profound call is followed by the profound question, what does it mean? How is one to live out this call? And Jesus goes to the desert and is tempted by all the traditional ways of living out this call. And so the devil tempts him. He's, ta- he's taken to the, to the desert by the Spirit. This is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. Luke is the gospel of the Holy Spirit. Everything depends on being filled with the Spirit. As a matter of fact, the, the chapter 4 begins with Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is part of what, this is part of what has to happen. The Spirit leads him there and the devil tempts him. And the devil, you know these, well, they're slightly different in, in the various... Gospels, but he says, if you are the Son of God, right away, he has been called the Son of God in the, in, in, in the prayer after the baptism, so now the devil says, oh, well, what, let's, let's talk about what that means. If you are, prove it. And here's how you can prove it. He's fasted for 40 days, he's famished, turn these stones into loaves of bread. And Jesus, each of the, and the second one is, uh, would you like to be, would you like to have all the power? He, uh, Satan or the devil says I will give he said these he showed him all the kingdoms and he says I'll give you all this power all this authority and glory uh, if you worship me and there's nothing that contradicts his claim nobody the gospel doesn't say he was bluffing he can't really do it it doesn't say that at all it assumes that it's true it assumes that he does in fact have all, that all of these kingdoms are, in fact, satanic kingdoms. In Luke's gospel, it's just called the devil all the way through, the diabolos, the sower of discord. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, at the very end, he's called Satan. Uh, Satan means the accuser. And uh, uh, what I try to argue in the book is that, in, in fact, Satan is the power behind all kingdoms because all kingdoms are based on scapegoating processes that bring social solidarity into being in the first instance so that they that we still do generate our social social solidarity at the expense of our enemies and victims and so in that sense satan is the the mastermind behind the kingdoms of this world and so his claim is absolutely legitimate i can give you all these and and Jesus decides, he doesn't say it here, but clearly Jesus is going to bring another kingdom into being, but it's precisely not that kind of kingdom. Jesus, in both of these temptations, quotes scripture. And again, I want to go back to something I talked about last time, and that is what I said about Mary. Mary in the Magnificat just erupts with this... this uh, quotations or paraphrasing of what of the Hebrew scriptures 
as though she is so formed by the Hebrew Scriptures that she can only speak and think in, the, in, in that way. And I quoted this man writing at the end of the 19th century, Thomas Dehaney Bernard, uh, to the following effect. He, he says, uh, Here the words as well as the thoughts are those of a high-souled Hebrew maiden of devout and meditative habit whose mind has taken the tone of the Scriptures in which she has been nurtured. We feel the breath of the prophets. We catch the echoes of the Psalms. And I associated that in the last session with the idea of swaddling. The swaddling is a way of forming the child, culturally forming. In any event, what, what, I, try to, what I want to say here is the same thing applies to Jesus. When Jesus speaks, he speaks because he's, an, he's, he's, he's the product of, of a religious culture. And he speaks that idiom. It comes out that way. It's not as though he sat there and thought, well, let me see, is there anything good I can say? Is there, let me see if I can't think of something from the Psalms or something from uh, Isaiah to you know, get back at this guy. No, it just comes out that way. He's shaped by it, you see. And we have to appreciate what it means to be shaped by culture. And Jesus is shaped by culture. And he's in a category of one. He's absolutely unique, totally unique and totally shaped by a culture. And we think those two things are opposite, but they're not. And so he quotes Scripture. Now, the question is, the real question is here between Jesus and the devil. The devil here plays a role exactly like the serpent in the garden. The serpent comes in. Adam and Eve have no interest in the fruit of the tree until the serpent comes in and says, that looks pretty interesting to me. And then suddenly Eve said, well, maybe you're right. So, likewise, Jesus shows no interest in the kingdoms of this world or in authority and glory and so on. The devil comes along and tries to get him interested in these. See, he, Jesus clearly feels that he has certain power and authority and charisma and, and in fact, God is moving through him. And he thinks, maybe he thinks, I could easily turn this into all kinds of popularity the devil says would you like that and the question is is Jesus going to imitate the devil or is the devil going to imitate Jesus well the devil's not going to imitate Jesus in any serious way you can bet on that nevertheless the third temptation the devil starts quoting scripture and that's an <laughs> that tells us something you see first of all it tells us the devil can quote scripture but it also says he's picking up on it you see and so he says, well, it is for it is written. You know, he takes him to Jerusalem, puts him on the temple, and then begins quoting scripture. It is written. Uh, can't throw yourself down. The angels will protect you. And Jesus says, uh, it is also uh, written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, we're, we know about that. But the uh, point there is that Jesus is human. And he is seriously tested. These are not mock tests. You know, these are real tests, and he realizes that's not what he's called to do. Okay, here's more of what I wanted to get to, and that is Jesus then goes to uh, his mission to um, his ministry in Galilee begins. He goes to his hometown. He begins in his hometown. He goes to Nazareth, where he's brought up, to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. The scroll was that of the prophet Isaiah. He enrolled it to a certain place and began to read. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled the scroll back up, gave it to the attendant, and sat down. We don't, we have to read this a little more carefully. He sat down. That was it. He just sat down. And the next verse says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He stopped the service. You know? He didn't read it and then say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your presence. He read it and sat down. And he stopped the show. Everybody's eyes were on him. And then he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your presence. It's not a big deal one way or another. But to me, I think it's... He didn't go up there... When, by reading the, the gospel tends to indicate that Jesus didn't go up there intending to comment on what he just read. He commented upon it when, in fact, all the eyes were on him now. When we say all the eyes were on him, what does that mean? The true ontology is to be grounded, uh, to have our ontological moorings in God. And a false ontology is to be the observed of all observers, uh, to have all eyes fixed on, or to, to have enough eyes fixed on oneself that one can feel that one's actually real after all to have enough people regard one as real to therefore take their word for it or something like that. So, in a way, this is another temptation. All eyes are fixed on him. And so he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they were amazed, and then they started to say, well, isn't this Joseph's son, and haven't we seen him around? And, and Jesus says to them, no prophet is accepted in his own town, his own home. And the question is, why is that true? Well, we could say it's true at a sort of at a sort of obvious level because, well, they knew him when he was a kid. They, you know, he was in Boy Scouts with one of theirs or something like that. You know, he was in he was in the little league or whatever. I mean, there's that level at which it's true. But I think it's true at a deeper level because a prophet. is precisely the one who's not accepted. Not just because he has an unacceptable message, but because his prophetic vocation is all tied up with his rejection by his community. His prophetic vocation begins with some kind of social rejection. So that a prophet is rejected by those whose acceptance would have made his prophetic vocation unnecessary. Uh, and eliminated the experience of social opprobrium, which endows him with what my friend Andrew McKenna calls the victim's epistemological privilege. An epistemological privilege is simply the ability to know things that other people can't know. And uh, McKenna argues that the victim is precisely the one who does know, who can see things that other people cannot see. And the prophet is the one who's able to see that and able to speak that. And in order for him to have the victim's epistemological privilege, he has to be one. To some extent, he has to suffer social opprobrium. We tend to think that the prophet is rejected because people don't like his message, which is, of course, true. 
But it's, it's also true that he has a message because he's been rejected. And then he mentions two scriptural events, one having to do with the prophet Elijah and the other having to do with the prophet Elisha. And in both, in the first, there were many widows in Israel when there was this, this uh, famine, and Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Sidon, a, a, a Gentile, a pagan. So he says, the prophet Elijah, there were lots of widows in Israel, and the prophet Elijah went to this outsider and ministered to her. And he says during the time of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel, but Elisha cured only the uh, Syrian Naaman, another outsider, another Gentile, pagan. This this is an echo of uh, don't don't claim uh, Abraham as your father and think that that's going to solve the problem. Uh, the prophets go to those outside, those rejected. And as soon as they hear this, they're filled with rage. Now, these are the same people who were totally astonished by him. All were looking on him with admiration. Where does he get this authority? And 60 seconds later, they're filled with rage. And it says, they got up, drove him out of town, led him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went on his way. Now, so if you put this along, if you put this with the what he hears at the baptism, he hears at the baptism, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. And his people, at first fascinated by him, turn on him and want to throw him off the cliff. And so it's those two things, the experience of some kind of social castigation and the experience of being uh, the favored one, the chosen one, uh, the called one of God. The next, then, then you have just a little, series of little stories about Jesus working and preaching, ministering to people and so on. And I want to pause on a couple of them and, and sort of just mention the others in passing. First thing he does, he goes to Capernaum, city of Galilee, is teaching on the Sabbath. Everybody's astounded by his authority. Uh, in the synagogue is a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And this man cries out, let us alone. This is the, the words of the demons inside him. Let us alone, uh, and so on. And he drives out this demon. And everybody is astonished. Now, there are lots of stories like this in the New Testament. Jesus and uh, others even driving out demons, dispelling demons, uh, exercising demons. And we have to, we tend to think of this as some kind of really hoary ancient uh, thing that doesn't have anything to do with us. But I think, in fact, the as we unravel and explicate what uh, Rene Girard has uncovered in terms of the mimetic or imitative structure of selfhood, we're going to discover as one of Girard's most, uh, most uh, insightful students has already begun to uncover, this is uh, Jean-Miguel Orgulion, uh, that 
in all experiences of selfhood, there is an other or others in whom the self is substantiated. So when Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, we could, everybody who, who ev everybody could say, I live now, not I, but blank lives with me. You see? My father, a whole slew of people, Michael Jackson, uh, I don't know, whoever it is, you know, somebody. Who are the next person? The next person I see on the silver screen, you know something. But always we find there's there's there is always the other in us. Cases of possession would be simply cases in which that other has become problematic, and one is trying to get rid of it. It's become a a, a kind of enslavement, and one wants to cast off this other. I think every non-organic psychological distress has to do with the other. The other with whom I'm somehow psychologically and emotionally entangled and don't want to be or don't want to be entangled in that way or want to, to have a different kind of rapport and so on. And I thought of this passage in uh, John Paul Sartre's Being and Nothingness. I'll read it to you. It's not totally apropos, but it helps kind of maybe spell this out a little bit. Here's what he writes there. The occasion which arouses hate is simply an act by the other which puts me in a state of being subject to his freedom. This act is in itself humiliating. It is humiliating as the concrete revelation of my objectness in the fact of the other's freedom. The revelation leaves in me the feeling that there is something to be destroyed if I am to be free myself, end quote. Now, this simply means that to be subject, that one discovers that one is subject to the other. The other is having an inordinate influence, and I want to get rid of it. Sartre's book is about ontology. Being in nothingness is about ontology. And uh, he's talking about a world with no transcendent other. And a world in which there's no transcendent other will have another. It'll just be another that pretty soon will be shown to have feet of clay. Possession is simply a psychological distress caused by an unwanted other that one is trying to get rid of. And um, so I think we, we need to try to think in terms of how does that relate to our world rather than just ignore it because it, we think it has only to do with the ancient world. Okay, so then Jesus goes about uh, healing and curing and so on. Uh, and then he calls his first disciples. There's a little thing here I might mention, and that is, uh, I think there's a reference here to to the two church, the two churches, so to speak, in the first century, the J Jewish Christian church and the Gentile Christian church. Uh, because Jesus goes to the lake of Gennesaret and a crowd gathers, and there are two boats there. And he gets into the one of them belonging to Simon. And Peter would have been, Peter and James would have represented the Jewish Christian world. And Paul, of course, would have represented the Gentile Christian world. And he taught from this one boat. And then he told uh, Simon Peter to go out and put his nets out. And he said, well, we've been out all night. I haven't caught anything. And Jesus said, never mind, go out and do that. So they go out and they catch so many fish 
that they signal their partners in the other boat to come and help them. I think that's a reference to the Gentile Christian mission. There's so many of them, particularly the way it ends. At the end, Jesus says, now you will be fishers of men. You see, now you will catch uh, people. So, just to mention, I think it's a nice little metaphor, the fact that there are two boats, the first gets full and then they bring the other out to help them with the harvest, so to speak, uh, is a nice image of the of uh, the relationship between Jew uh, the Jewish Christian community and the Gentile Christian community in the first century. I really want to focus on the one little cure of the paralytic, but it's preceded by one cure of the leper, and perhaps that sets us up for it. Jesus comes upon a man covered with leprosy, and he pleads with Jesus to cure him, and Jesus touches him and cures him. Now, we have to understand leprosy in terms of first century Judaism. Leprosy was a, was a clear indication that, that one was uh, uh, sinful. God was displeased. One was cursed by God. Uh, and secondly, to get anywhere near a leper, much less touch a leper, was to be infected by a religious scourge, not just a physical one. The uncleanness of the leper was a religious mark with both moral and religious implications, severe moral and religious implications. So uh, Jesus in, this, in Luke's gospel always moves towards the outsider, the one left out. He is the one left out, the stone the builders rejected. See, He always moves towards those left out. There's a wonderful passage in the, uh, the writings of the Sufi poet Rumi where he, he gives the advice, which is, be like one who, when he enters the room, luck shifts to the one who needs it. It's really a marvelous thing. Well, that's true of Jesus, of, of, of all the Gospels, really, but especially true of the Gospel of Luke. So when Jesus touches the leper, he violates a religious taboo. He, he associates himself, both physically and religiously and morally, with the one who's cast out, and he cures him. But then he says to him, tell no one. And... Show yourself to the priest. Make an offering, a sacrificial offering, according to the law of Moses, uh, and tell no one. This is this is being deferential with respect to the old uh, religious order. But I think this "tell no one" has to be related to the fact that immediately after that it says, "Now more than ever, word about Jesus spread, and many crowds gathered to hear him." and to be cured of their diseases. And the next verse is, but he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. So crowds are coming to him to be cured of their, of their diseases. And I would say to you here, what, what this cure represents, take the cure of the leper, for example, what the cure represents is forgiveness. That is to say, when Jesus touches the leper and cures him, the, what he's really curing him of 
is of his social scourge. Now, he's curing him of a very terrible physical affliction, too. But he's restoring him to social life, to social dignity, you see. It, it was that the, that Simon Weil argues is the worst scourge of affliction, is, is the social contempt that comes with it. And so he's restoring him to dignity. He's rescuing him from being that one that is cast out. Jesus, in, in all the Gospels, and this one particular, particularly, uh, locates the one who is the one despised by others, and he brings that one back into uh, s social respectability, bestows dignity on that one. And so it's not a question of just performing medical cures. The point is not to perform medical cures. Now, in New Testament times, any medical affliction would have been read as divine disapproval. So the fact that there are all these medical cures, you have to realize, why. Jesus is on the planet for a few years, precious few, and uh, he's a busy guy, and there's a lot to do. The world's in a mess. And here he is curing people who are going to die in a few years anyway. It's not as though they're cured forever and ever and ever. So what? Why does he do that? And I would say, this is a good question. I would say, it doesn't make any sense at all. Well, maybe it does, because compassion, sure. Uh, but in terms of the mission, in terms of the, the, the witness that it is, it means that all these people are no longer cast out. They're no longer despised. They've had their dignity restored. God goes to those who are outside and restores them to their dignity in their own eyes and the eyes of others. Okay, so there. Let, that lays... that lays us open or prepares up prepares us for this next healing uh, he's preaching the Pharisees and teachers of the law are sitting nearby and uh, uh, there's a big crowd and some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed they were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus but finding no way they uh, because of the crowd they went up to the roof you know the story very well and they lowered him uh, with his bed through the tiles in the middle of the roof right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now this must have been... Just think about this. This is a paralyzed man. He wanted to be cured. And he's lowered down there. And Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Now there's a huge crowd standing around, among them the Pharisees. And the Pharisees immediately are up in arms. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. Why, what are you doing? You can't claim to forgive sins. And Jesus says, is it easier to forgive sins or to cure physical handicaps of this severe? His man's totally paralyzed. What's easier to do? That's a pretty good question. I would say it's a pretty good question. We invented psychological sciences about 100 years ago to try to, try to cope with one glaring aspect of the modern crisis. And... We spent a hundred years, and I think fundamentally it's. Well, see, we don't. When we say forgiveness, we. I think we really underestimate what that means. We should, and you know, in the weeks to come, I want to ponder more and more what it means. Forgiveness. It's not just the little thing we think it. It is. It's a huge opening 
to a new life. Uh, but anyway, we invented the psychological sciences in order to try to do more or less that. And I don't think we've been all that successful. It's been a hundred years trying to do it, you see. So, uh, which is harder? To cure paralysis or to forgive sins? What is, why, why is this man, I mean, Luke is a great storyteller, why is this man paralyzed? Paralysis is a perfect metaphor for the problem. See? And so Jesus says, you're forgiven, and the Pharisees immediately say, no, only God can forgive. And Jesus says, well, which is easier, to cure paralysis or to forgive? And so he says to the man, stand up, take your bed, and go home, which the man does. Now, I think what this story tells us is that all the cures are really forgiveness miracles. That's what, what's happening in all the physical cures is forgiveness, that the heart of the mission is forgiveness. You might even say that miracles are what the act of forgiveness looks like to those with an untrained eye. Now, when I say that Jesus has an eye for the one left out, I don't mean that in just the simple way because the one left out need not be the one who, for whom our sympathies would automatically be aroused. And James Breach, at the very end of his book, The Silence of Jesus, says something very interesting. He, he says about Jesus that he is the most loving and the least sentimental person that ever lived. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely marvelous. That's absolutely marvelous. So, and we, because we tend to think that our sentimentality, we think our sentimentality is love. See? So we, <laughs> we miss the point. Um, so here, the next little thing that comes to mind, because in the next little thing, Jesus uh, sees the tax collector. Now, the tax collector... These are people who are who have who collaborate with the oppressors, and they make a they make a bundle doing it. See, so they're opportunist, they're religiously suspect, they're regarded by, as sinners by uh, the righteous and the Pharisees and the scribes and so on, and so they're despised. But they're fat cats; they're rolling in dough because they're making a you know they're doing well on this. Uh, uh, they're getting their cut, see. So they're despised. They're morally questionable, to say the least. But the point is not, so we shouldn't think of the outcast as always, you know, the poor widow and so on. There's certainly she is. But here's the here's the tax collector. We're all paralytics. You know that I think that's the message of the gospel. We're all paralytics, and we're paralyzed by. that which can be forgiven, so to speak. You see, forgiveness is the cure for paralysis. We're all paralytics. And we want to be free. This is why I think we need to probe more deeply what the word forgiveness in the New Testament means. It means freedom. And it means the end of paralysis. So later on, the Pharisees and scribes confront Jesus with the fact that he's eating and drinking, whereas the disciples of John prayed and fasted. 
And this has to do with the careful observance of the Jewish dietary laws. And Jesus seems to take those laws and the others in stride, you might say. That is to say, he doesn't flagrantly violate them, uh, but he, he's not as scrupulous about them as some who are would have preferred. But he's bringing something new into the world, the message about the kingdom, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but he provides two parables for them, two little parables. Now, these are really proverbial sayings that were probably around before the time of Jesus. And whether he used them or not, we don't know for sure. But Luke uses them, and Luke has an eye for the significance of things. So here they are. The first is, no one tears a piece from a new cloak and sews it on an old cloak. Otherwise, the new one will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. What's being explored here, of course, is the relationship between what's new, namely the gospel and what Jesus represents, and what's old, namely the Jewish tradition up to that point. And it's a complicated relationship. It's not one that can be simply dealt with. Uh, Christianity is not an extension of Judaism. On the other hand, it is not something separate from it, altogether separate from it either. So he he has that little parable, which is, if you take a piece of it, which what the temp temptation perhaps to some is to take a piece of it and simply patch up the old with it. And this little parable says you can't do that. That will destroy what's new. And what comes out in Matthew's version of this parable more than it does here is that that piece from the new is unshrunken. In Matthew's version of this, this is unshrunken cloth. So when you use it to patch the old, it shrinks and tears away and does more damage to the old than the original tear or whatever needed mending in the old did. So it actually harms the old. And the same thing is echoed in the next little parable, uh, which goes as follows. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and be spilled, and the skins themselves will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, this same, same situation. We have something new, and it is fermenting. It is filled with the Spirit. And if you put it into the old, it will burst the old. If you see this metaphor in terms of culture, then the old wineskin is, in fact, being destroyed by the gospel revelation. Perhaps the metaphor here of the danger of putting new wine into old wineskins takes us back to, to that quip from Mark Twain that I shared with you in our first session, where, where he says he's, he's trying to get, he, he suggests that we call the Christian missionaries back from China because China doesn't need them and we do because there's, there are all these lynchings going on. Uh, finally, there are even lynchings in Missouri happening, which uh, alarmed him. Uh, and he, so, so he said, bring the Christian missionaries back. And, and he said, the Chinese are universally conceded to be an excellent people, and so on and so forth. He, he described them 
uh, in, a very, in very praiseworthy terms. And he says, then he says, besides, almost every convert runs the risk of catching our civilization. We ought to be careful of that. We ought to think about. We ought to think twice. He says about that before we encourage that risk. For quoting Mark Twain, once civilized, China can never be uncivilized again. We have not been thinking of that. And I suggest that we substitute the word demythologized for civilized. Once a, a, a traditional culture uh, is demythologized by the gospel revolution, revelation, which is what the gospel revelation does. I think it. I think fundamentally, the two, two uh, genres, so to speak, are myth and gospel, and I think they. I think gospel always deconstructs myth. So the new wine is demythologized. The new wine is the gospel. If you pour it into an old cultural form, it will burst it. You see, it will call, bring about a demythologization of that cultural structure. The gospel brings its forgiveness and the restoration of dignity precisely to those people who would be designated as the one to be expelled in the restoration of the cultural order. And that's why it keeps the, it, that's why in the presence of the gospel no culture, no conventional culture can re, regenerate itself because it will always regenerate itself at the expense of those that are designated as outsiders, outcasts, morally corrupt, the beyond the pale, all of those marginal characters, which the gospel goes straight to in order to uh, redeem, forgive, restore their dignity, uh, etc. So if one of those victimization things happens, even if the even if gospel people do it, which they do all the time, God, Christians do all this just as much as anybody else, what, what, what Christians do and what the gospel does, as you know, aren't always the same thing. <laughs> So the Christians may be doing some of this just like everybody else. Meanwhile, the gospel is calling attention to the one that is paying the price for the new cultural order. And as soon as our attention is drawn to that one, that new cultural order to, ceases to be legitimate enough, morally legitimate enough to be longstanding as a, social, as a source of order. So we, have, we live in a world that's constantly... The new wine is constantly causing the old wineskins to burst. Now, one of the things that I've found as I've been reading Luke and thinking about it is that, you know, everybody knows Luke's a great storyteller. Luke's the literary genius of the New Testament. Um, but what I've noticed is the obvious, which I didn't notice until this time through, which is that he... Uh, tells stories with stories, which is to say, he his gospel is a florilegia. It's the use of which all gospels are in in one way or another. Uh, but for Luke, I think his the the stylistic uh, aspect of his gospel is is uh, makes this much more obvious. He takes existing stories from Mark and from this document called Q, which was a collection of uh, of uh, sayings and stories. And he assembles them slightly differently than the other evangelists do. He, he adds stories that nobody else has. Uh, and all these stories are a way of telling a much bigger story. So I've become fascinated with this sort of narrative ensemble that, uh, that Luke is, is presenting. And, of course, he's presenting it for catechetical reasons. Uh, his arrangement 
is not historical. I mean, it probably is fairly close to uh, how events such as these might have developed historically, but his arrangement basically is catechetical. Uh, so, I want to start off with a couple of the short little stories that, that begin chapter 6 and think about them and think about what comes after them. So, what, what precedes and what follows certain things help define that thing. So it's one of the ways in which we uh, get closer to what the evangelist is trying to tell us. So the, uh, the first two stories in, the, in chapter 6 are stories, both of which take place on the Sabbath, both of which involve the opposition of the Pharisee. Uh, in both stories, the Pharisees are squinting at Jesus because he's doing these things which objectively are either... Uh, benign or very good things, healing people or whatever, eating in a certain way. Uh, but when done on the Sabbath in the way that he's doing them, then they create a problem. And I think we have to understand what follows from these two stories. So in the first, Jesus and his disciples uh, were going through grain field, and his disciples plucked some heads of grain, rubbed them together in their hands, and ate them, which was a way of nourishing yourself if you're on on the road but the problem is that by the strict definition of the sabbath laws that was regarded as working it was a was regarded as as milling grain or something like that which you were not allowed to do on the sabbath so the so the uh, pharisees object and jesus responds to their objection in a way that is that is classic in terms of uh, relating to the tradition and transforming at the same time. A living tradition makes this possible. One can go back and find in the tradition those things that keep it from, from uh, rigidifying. And so here they say that you shouldn't be doing this on the Sabbath, and Jesus goes back to a story in, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the story of David when he was uh, out with his soldiers and they had no food, and they came upon uh, the house of God, and there uh, presented in the house of God is what's called the bread of presence or the show bread. And David went in and helped himself to it and gave it to his soldiers. So Jesus uses this as a way of uh, explaining what he's doing. And so he returns to the tradition in order to free the tradition from its rigidity. Now, we moderns, we think, oh, rigid tradition, let's get out of here. Let's leave it. Let's go someplace else. And most of the time, we end up in a situation far more rigid because it's not a living tradition. And this tradition we have is a living tradition so that the cure for its periodic uh, uh, episodes of rigidity is always in the tradition itself. So, so that's the first story. And the second story is very much like it. It's the Sabbath again. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees are there. They're looking at Jesus, trying to uh, size up his mission and what he's all about and thinking they'll probably get a, uh, an accusation against him. And there's a, a, a man who is crippled, who has a withered hand. And Jesus knew what they were thinking, the scribes and Pharisees. And so he called the man up to him and, and uh, he said, speaking really to the scribes and Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? 
After looking around at them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did. And, they, and of course, the scribes and Pharisees had the predictable reaction, which is they were filled with fury. Uh, so, now, these are... Now, the scribes and Pharisees, particularly the Pharisees, are the people in the Jewish environment at the time who are the closest to Jesus, theologically, and whose life of moral rigor is something uh, remarkable, really. Now, it was moral rigor based on legalisms, admittedly. Nevertheless, some biblical scholars have argued that the Pharisees would have been the natural audience for Jesus' message in the first instance. And so they're rejecting it because it isn't the legalism that uh, is so much a part of their, uh, their religiosity. Okay, so now, those are two stories. Notice that they're exactly the same story. So Luke front loads this part of the gospel with these two stories. That's a way of, that the, he's sending a little flag up, helping us understand where this, how to read the rest of the, of uh, this section of the gospel. So then we, then we read the next verses with a little more care. Uh, they go as follows. Now, during those days... Now, what could that refer to? Those days. Now, this may have been in a, in a, a collection of uh, traditions that Luke had that used that phrase, those days. But Luke either uses the phrase himself, initiates it, or he adopts it from his source. It's clearly referring to what just went before. In those days, Jesus went to the mountain to pray. Now, the Luke and Jesus goes to goes to pray, more so than the than uh, one sees in the other Gospels, and I think probably Luke felt that the higher Christology that was developing late in the first century uh, was giving short shrift to Jesus' prayer life. You see, the more Jesus becomes the second person of the Trinity, you see, the, 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 the less the prayer life comes into play, or at least there's that. There is a little of that tendency, you see. But for Luke, uh, Jesus is, he prays before every major turning point in his, in his life. And so here, he goes to the mountain to pray. Not only that, but he spent the night in prayer to God. Now, if we read this just past, you know, just go the way we usually read these things, we say, oh, well, yeah, we know Jesus is a very holy guy, and he prayed all night. Well, that, we know that. And then we say, wait a minute, he didn't pray all night every night. He couldn't have prayed all night every night and carried out his work. That wears you out. I don't, I, I've never tried it, but I'm, I can imagine it would wear you out. So why did he pray all night? You see what I mean? Well, it must have had to do with what went before. And it must help explain what comes after. So he prayed all night. Why? Well, look, the people that might have been the people to receive his message are increasingly hostile. In the first of these stories, they're critical because he's eating on the Sabbath. In the second, they're filled with fury. And what does this tell him about his mission? 
he goes to pray. He prays all night. And when day came, he called his disciples. Now, in Luke's Gospel, you have disciples. So far in Luke's Gospels, you have disciples. Those are the people who believe in Jesus. And then you have the crowds. And those are the people who are interested, but who have not committed to him. And now he's going to create an, uh, those that are more, even more intimate with him. He called his disciples and chose 12 of them whom he also named apostles. So now this is the inner circle. So he chose Simon and changed Simon's name to Peter. And then the, and Luke lists the other 12, including uh, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, we're used to this. Jesus chose 12, uh, 12 uh, apostles, and so we don't connect. But obviously... Luke, for Luke, it connects with what went before, which is that his message to Israel, the, the Pharisees in a way represent the, the old Israel. And Jesus, in choosing 12, is not a random number, as you know, biblically. It's the, the 12 children, the 12 sons of, of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel had 12 tribes. Everything revolves around this number 12, you see. So when Jesus chooses, it's a prophetic sign. When he chooses 12, that, that means that's a very dramatic moment. You see, in, in a sense, if word gets out that Jesus chose, chose 12 disciples or 12 apostles, uh, immediately in the minds of those who understand these things, they will see something. They will see what this means. And so what does it mean? It means both a radical break. It's a very daring prophetic act he he publicly or at least in front of his disciples chooses 12 as those he will send out that's what the word apostle means and so it's a way of announcing a new Israel the new sons of Jacob and their mission to the world on the other hand it's there's a sense of continuity he didn't say, well, the heck with that, let's choose 17, or let's do something else. He, he in, the, in much the same way he did when he quoted this passage about David in the first story about uh, the Sabbath, he goes back and he, he takes that tradition and begins to reinterpret it. So I think it's a dramatic moment, even though it's one that we don't notice, the drama of which we don't really notice. It's a dramatic moment if one tries to imagine which is always a little risky, the subjectivity of Jesus. But when Luke, in a way, invites us to do that, he says he goes to the mountain to pray all night, and he comes down with this announcement, which doesn't seem much to us, but which is the beginning of something uh, very profound, which is the fulfillment and the universe, ultimately, from Luke's point of view, ultimately, the universal extension of the, of the biblical historical journey so in a sense it's the it's it's a it's a kind of a founding moment it's the founding of the new israel which is the church now the idea of the church as the new israel didn't develop explicitly until the second century nevertheless it developed around this story and others others like it so then we come to the right after that jesus goes to a level place, a plain. 
and he delivers the Lucan version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a revelation about how the world really works and a presentation of the ethics that this new community will have to adopt. Ethics that are not arbitrary, ethics that have to do with the way the world really is. See what I mean? The ethics that exist have to do with the way the cultural structures are, but the ethics that uh, Jesus is pronouncing are those that have to do with the way the world is. Uh, now, it's interesting that in Matthew, Matthew has a much more elaborate Sermon on the Mount, and Mar uh, Luke has a much briefer one, and Matthew's Sermon is on the mountain, which is the place where you go. To, Mo Moses goes to meet God. It's the place where the temple is. Uh, it's the place of revelation. It's the transcendent place. But Luke goes down on the plain. It's the Sermon on the Plain. He's, he's there among the people. Jesus talking to the two people about how to live in this world. So on the level plain, there's a great crowd and a crowd of disciples. A great multitude and a crowd of disciples. So these are two different categories. The disciples are those who believe in him and the multitudes are those who are curious. And the people were, had come from all over, Judea, Jerusalem, uh, the coast of Tyre and Sidon and so on. And so here Jesus... Now, you see, when Luke says there's the great multitudes plus the disciples, he's, making, he's underscoring what he means in the verse that follows where, when he says, Jesus looked up at his disciples and said... Now, if he hadn't told us that there were both disciples and a multitude there, we, wouldn't, we would think nothing of this. But since he told us that, we, we have to register something here. He could be speaking to all of them, but he's not speaking to all of them. He's speaking to the disciples. So this is critical for understanding this, because when we read this passage, it's, it's almost instinctive to assume that what Jesus is talking about, more or less, is Christians and non-Christians how Christians behave and how non-Christians behave. But when he's directing it to the disciples, it's clear he's talking about the Christian community. Luke is talking about the Christian community. Luke's community has lots of rich people in it, lots of comfortable people in it, lots of well-fed people in it, and th they uh, have the problems associated with that, which is uh, not maybe not feeling the plight of their their less fortunate uh, brothers and sisters as keenly as they ought to, and so on. So, so Luke is addressing this, addressing Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, so to speak, to the people in his community. He's not saying this is the way the, the pagans live and this is the way we Christians are going to live, but he's saying this, this has to do with us Christians. And in a sense, there is a kind of... Apocalyptic is probably too strong... A term, uh, but there is definitely a judgment sense in this presentation, and uh, that would, I think, for reasons that I'll try to discuss later on, have more to do with Christians, those who have been exposed to the gospel, than those who haven't. Uh, but I'll come to that later. Anyway, uh, so here's how it is. Now it's a diptych. It's four four blessings and four woes, and they're absolutely parallel. Each one echoes the the, the corresponding one in the opposite side of the diptych, and the last blessing, the last woe, the fourth in each column, so to speak, really sum up everything. And I think this is more or less the way the biblical 
tradition is, the last in the series of itemized items, is to some extent a summary of everything, which is also true of the first. It's also true of the first. Uh, so, for example, when the first says, uh, blessed are you who are poor, uh, that's, that could be regarded as a summary thing. Poor meaning everything, you see. Poor meaning dependent, uh, poverty of spirit, as well as physical, uh, you know, material simplicity and even want and so on. Uh, but I'm going to focus mostly on the last blessing, the last curse, because I think they sum it up especially well. So here they are. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now this this is both both of these are in the sing, uh, in the present tense. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So there's no future here. And then the future comes into the next two. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled. You will be filled. And blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. So uh, I want to spend a little time with these. Blessed are you who are hungry. As I said, poor, I think, has to do with something much larger. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. And I would ask, with what? With what? With food? With, uh, you see, steak and potatoes? With pizza? With what would, you see, what is, what, what kind of fulfillment are we talking about? And I think we have to say, this doesn't, this is not, a reversion to some kind of Deuteronomic uh, theology, which is if you do the right thing, you get you, you get rewarded. Uh, you will be filled, uh, but I would say you'll be filled with a, a sense of joy and meaning once you understand what your your life of simplicity, poverty, even hardship, struggle means in a larger context. But I'm especially interested in the last one for somewhat perverse reasons I must say blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh and my question is at what <laughs> at what will you laugh when it's laughing time you see you're weeping now well does it mean that all the weeping will finally pay off and that the tears will have earned a few compensatory laughs I don't think so. So, when I ask myself, at what will those who are now weeping laugh, the answer was provided the other night in the Santa Rosa class. A friend of mine told a story about a retreat she went on. And she said, in this retreat, we were asked to chart our lives in terms of the, the emotional peaks and valleys. When things had gone well for us, when things, when we had had down times and were sad and suffering and disappointed and broken and all of that. So everybody charted their lives. And then the next task was more or less as an overlay on that, which is to locate in your life the moments when you were closest to God. And lo and behold, they were at the in the troughs. You see, they were at those moments when one was broken and sad and outside of it and things weren't working. And in a sense, this little exercise 
at this retreat is exactly what the Bible is all about. The biblical text is nothing but that. I mean, the biblical text always looks back and says, look, it, in a sense, the Bible says to us, look back. And you will be amazed and you will laugh at what you used to weep over. <laughs> you will realize that it was when you were in the desert that God was there. It was when you were in the Babylonian captivity that God was there. It was when you were losing at the game of history that God was there. In other words, you look back and it, precisely at those moments where you wept, you now laugh because you see something there you wouldn't trade for anything. Now, that's not the, this is not some Pollyanna operation where you say, oh, well, it really wasn't sad after all. It could be terrible. could be terrible. could be you still to this day want to go back and reverse it if you could. Nevertheless, you recognize something which is the real mystery of liberation. It's the mystery of liberation because it says to us, you don't have to be afraid. It says what the cross says loud and clear, which is even there, the God revealed by Jesus will be there. See? And even when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? He, that's a prayer. You see? If it was utter forsaking, the prayer would, would have been a, uh, a non sequitur. So, anyway, that's the point I'm trying to say is when, the, when uh, the Sermon on the Plain tells us that you weep now, but you will laugh, I think we should read that not in terms of some kind of compensatory justice. Although, I don't want to rule out compensatory justice. I mean, if, uh, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to, to psychologize this whole thing either. But I think at a deeper level, it's it's when we look and we realize. And you know what this is? This is the the, the, the divine comedy. When Again, we don't get Dante. Dante calls it the divine comedy. And it's the divine comedy precisely because the tragic and the comic can never quite be separated. And it's when you see it, not comic in the sense of ha-ha, but when you see that suffering and joy are not separated. They're not at war with one another. Quite the contrary. You're free. It's a, it, this, is, this whole thing is a, is a program of liberation. You see? Because if this is true, all those spooks we've been running from have no substance. You see what I mean? That doesn't mean that those... Sat, again... It's not Pollyanna. It doesn't mean the sadness is not sadness and suffering is not suffering. It certainly is. Uh, but, the, but, so there you have it. Now, <clears throat> the other diptych, now I'm going to, I'm skipping number four and going to the first three curses or woes, which are just exactly the same thing. And they go this way. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. A woe to you who are full now. In other words, you look back and what you're going to see is all those high points. And it, you're not going to have that same experience. People that look back and see, discover something about those low points. Woe to you... Who, by the way, the, all, these curses do not... Uh, blessings and curses do not apply. You, it's not like we divide the room up into those to whom the blessings uh, apply and those to whom the curses apply. The blessings and curses apply to us all because precisely as this exercise my friend went through on a retreat, we all have these 
peaks and valleys. And at the peaks, we're usually, spiritually speaking, dumb as a post. You see what I mean? We, we're, we're brain dead at the peaks. We're having a nice time. It's perfectly good. I, I, years and years ago, I wrote this poem about... Actually, it had to do with St. Luke. It was a poem about St. Luke. But it had to do with this, the fear of dying by a pool at a patio party. <laughs> so, I mean, you see, when things are going well, the, nothing wrong with that, but that, you see, you don't... <laughs> Yates said he didn't want to... He met somebody who didn't want to play Hamlet because he, he was afraid if he died playing Hamlet, he'd be Hamlet for all eternity. So, likewise, with these... The <laughs> that's... Well, I mean, anyway, you see what I'm saying. So the, so the peaks and the troughs apply to us all. So that the, it's not as though, oh, I can read this and say, oh, well, good for me. The blessings apply to me and the woes must apply to somebody else. Well, they don't. So, so this is for all of us. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. You will, I would say, what was that? You will ache with longing that you did not experience more hunger in the past. You will long to have experienced more hunger than you did. And hunger, not just in the sense of bodily hunger. And finally, the third one, Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. And one says, At what? And Again, I was reminded of this the other day. When, back when we were studying the four quartets, we made a good deal of this passage in Little Gidding. And uh, it really is apropos here. Uh, Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. And we have this passage in Little Gidding which goes as follows. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harm, which once you took for the exercise of virtue. Then fool's approval stings and honor stains. And this, uh, even this last verse in Eliot, fool's approval stings and honor stains, brings me to the last of the blessings and the last of the curses, which is in each case that it has to do with the social element in these things. And I think it sums up all this. Ultimately, poverty, hunger, uh, mourning, sorrow, sadness, on one hand, and riches and laughing and uh, uh, having an abundance on the other, have tremendous social consequences. They have far more social consequences in, the, in first century Judaism than they do today, even though today they have plenty, way more than they deserve. Nevertheless, we live in a world that has been under the influence of the Christian tradition for a long time. In the first century, to be poor, to be diseased, to be hungry, to be uh, suffering in some way, meant that you were out of favor with God. Because the old, the old economy, the old moral economy was: if you, if you're a, a, a virtuous person, God will reward you. And of course, there's a counter voice to that in even in the Hebrew tradition. Nevertheless, it it, it tends to float to the surface uh, in human experience, uh, regardless of the counter claims that our tradition has, and it floats to the surface even today. I mean, uh, 
uh, I told you one time I saw a book not long ago in the bookstore right next to the Pope's book and the, and the Dalai Lama's book, the title of which was Jesus CEO. And it was all about how to use Christianity to, uh, to uh, <laughs> uh, make it big. Anyway, so the point I'm trying to make is uh, there's a social element that's very important. It's in the same way that we say when Jesus goes around forgiving people, he's performing an act which has profound social consequences because these people who were, were in need of forgiveness were outcasts. And when he heals people, he's doing the same thing because people who were disease-ridden were thought to be uh, sinners. So now we come to the social element of this. The, the last of the woes is, Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Now, all speak well of you sums up this whole thing. That is to say, you're, that's the real payoff isn't it? I mean, that's the false ontology that we talked about when we were doing that course on the famished craving. If everybody speaks well of you, there's nothing more intoxicating than that. There's nothing more capable of, of uh, sinking us in a, a delirium about what's really happening than to have a situation where all speak well of you. So it's it's the social approval and it's at that, at those moments of social approval I was talking I was joking about what it's like on the peaks where you're completely brain dead in terms of really being in touch with the living God and that's because who needs God I mean everybody's approving you know what I mean now now some people we have to recognize the tremendous spiritual gifts of people who can be in the presence of that kind of acclaim and still have a prayerful life. But at the, on the other hand, we have to say there is a tendency for us human beings uh, to substitute the approval of the crowd, particularly if it's unanimous or near you know, functionally unanimous, for uh, the grounding in uh, the, uh, the prayer life and the relationship with God. So, I think I was thinking of Simone Weil, who's wrote this marvelous essay on affliction and how affliction is the, is, is the way in which we come to know the true God. And she says in there, and affliction for her is, means suffering, means bodily suffering, but of course it can also mean emotional, psychological suffering. But she says, quote, the social factor is essential. There is not really affliction unless there is social degradation or the fear of it in some form or another. And so I think that's why the fourth curse and the fourth blessing, and I haven't even read to you the fourth blessing, I'm going to read to you in a second, why they have to do with the social uh, effects. Because those are the ones that, are, that really turn us around. So, woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what they, that's how they treated the false prophets. So let's go back now to the last blessing that corresponds to that. And it's as follows. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, defame you, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the true prophets. They expelled them. We have here this question, which I tried to... Uh, 
I'm one long plug for my book these days, but which I, that's because I keep talking about things that are in it. But uh, I tried to show in the book that the that the prophetic calling and the and the social contempt of the prophet's community for the prophet ha are related to one another, not in the simple-minded way. But the prophet's calling has, to some extent, to do with the fact that he's already a social uh, outcast, and it's his deepen his prophetic calling deepens as his social ostracism uh, deepens. Uh, that is to say, he is able to see what it is he's trying to tell them about because he is the victim of their scorn. In other words, he's experiencing what Andrew McKenna calls the victim's epistemological privilege. And he's trying to share the insights that that privilege has made available to him with the people who are in the process of victimizing him, which is pretty tough. It's like making the bed with the patient still on it. 